This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free and I highly recommend it. That's www.maxbmw.com. back we had a young adventurer named ben king on the show he's riding a crf 250 around the world well not long after we spoke with him he seemed to disappear from social media there was a lot of people worried while well, he's resurfaced and he's got an incredible story of what happened to him in the middle east i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hitstead. Dr. Gregory W. Crazy. Bar. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmidt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Matt Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Googletech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Ben King is about 22 or 23 years old. He's traveling the world by himself on his Honda CRF250 motorcycle. Now, we had him on the show about two months ago. Ben's full of energy and enthusiasm and seems to attract people and make friends everywhere he goes. 
He started out on his trip with a, a bid for a world record to be the youngest circumnavigation of the globe by motorcycle. But it wasn't very long before he ditched that goal in favor of just slowing down and experiencing the world sort of day by day. So slow, in fact, that you're going to hear on this episode where he's being paced by another traveler who happens to be a cyclist. Well, some time ago, not long after we spoke with Ben, he disappeared from the radar for social media. He stopped posting. There were no updates, no new friends, no Instagram pictures, nothing. He was just simply gone. And some of the listeners that heard him on this show sent us emails and messages asking if we knew what happened to Ben, but we didn't have a clue. No one seemed to. For a lone traveler to just stop updating and stop doing social media, well, it's a concern for those of us who follow them. Well, thankfully, Ben did resurface, and he's got quite a story about what happened to him in those weeks he was off social media. It's a whole adventure in itself, and maybe sort of an adventure wrapped inside a larger adventure that shapes Ben's life. Ben, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio, first of all. Thanks so much. It's great to be here again. Now, Ben, you've had a lot happen in the past four or five weeks in your adventure. Oh, it's been absolutely, it's been, it's been crazy. Um, I think it was, I think the last time I spoke was just after my my arm accident, wasn't it, in, that's in Tehran? Right. That's right. So, so, yeah, that's right. Basically, but when we left you, you were nursing an arm that you injured. Um, you slipped on some water on the floor of a hotel room. And I, I guess you hurt your arm. You didn't break it, did you? You end up getting an X-ray? No, so in the end, it was only dislocated. Um, like, it was, I think it's anterior dislocation. So it basically popped out and put back in again, which was much better than a break. Mm. Um, but, but still quite, quite funny. Now you've learned to deal with that. Can you fix it yourself now? Oh no! I'm still. I still have absolutely no clue what I, what I would do. Um, <laughs> literally, it was. They gave me a sling and said I had to rest it for three weeks um, because it was. It kept sort of moving a little bit, but I couldn't. I couldn't rest for three weeks. I had to keep going because of my visa. So I basically just pushed on. Um, but the arm seems to be okay now. Um, um, I still no clue what I'll do if it happens again. Um, I guess I'll just call up my, my doctor friends and <laughs> get it fixed that way. You've certainly managed to connect with a lot of people on the road. And do you think that is because you're traveling by yourself? Do you think you would have connected with that many people had you been with someone else? Oh, this is the easiest answer ever. It is 100% because I'm by myself. Um, yeah. Definitely. If I was, if I was with, um, I mean, all my trips, I've always been alone. But if I was with a group of people, you know, yeah, even just one person, you end up staying, you know, in your little sort of group and you, if you're, say you get to the evening and you're both exhausted, um, you're both just going to say, okay, we'll just, we'll just spend the night in the tent or we'll just spend the night in the room in the hostel or whatever. You know, we've got each other, we'll keep each other company, we'll go for a beer or whatever. But when you're by yourself, you know, you sort of crave, well, at least I do, I crave that sort of social interaction. So I'll go out of my way, even if I'm exhausted, to try and find people. Um, and it works sort of the other way. People see me and I'm less threatening because I'm by myself. Um, you know, they, they sort of feel that they can come and speak to me, um, which is just, I just think it's fantastic. I love it. It's so, so great. I mean, obviously, I've never traveled with someone, so I don't know what it's like, but from all the experiences I've had, I mean, it's, yeah, I would not have it any other way. I love, I love being alone because I'm never actually ever alone. <laughs> it's great. Well, normally we wouldn't have someone back on the show again this soon after we talked last time, but 
in the past four or five weeks, <laughs> boy, you've got like a whole adventure that's gone on here. And I, and I want to run through this with you. So after we talked, you know, you were nursing your arm. Where did you go? Yeah, so after Tehran, I made my way south uh, towards the Persian Gulf in the south of Iran, um, and which I realized was a massive mistake because everyone, <laughs> as I got further and further south, everyone kept saying, what are you doing here? You know that it's going to get hotter and hotter as you head further south because um, it's, it's summertime. It's the worst time to be in that area. And I had no idea. So I was leaving the crazy snowy winters of the north behind um, <laughs> in, uh, in Turkey and heading to sort of crazy, crazy extreme heat, you know, 40, 50 degrees. Um, and it was, and you could tell because the people started getting darker, um, just because the sun is so intense. It was absolutely, it was crazy. So I headed down to the coast, um, sort of through Isfahan, Shiraz, uh, and down to Bandar Abbas. And then I got down to this island, uh, down to the down to the coast, and I heard that there was this island in the Persian Gulf between Iran and Oman and the United Arab Emirates. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to, you know go to this island on with my bike. So I turned up at this of this sort of the, the ferry port and said, hey, can I take my bike on? And they sort of looked a little bit confused, started radioing around. And they said, okay, yes, uh, it'll be an extra, I think 10,000 or something, which I think, I forgot what the currency is, but I think it's like an extra 50 pence or something crazy. <laughs> like it'll be an extra 50 pence for the bike. And I was thinking, I thought I'd heard it wrong and thought it was going to be like, five, 10 pounds or something. And then when they said 50, 50p, I was like, wow, okay. I was like, brilliant, yeah. 50p is like a half a dollar in American dollars. <laughs> yes, it's like half a dollar. And um, I think, oh, that's amazing. So I turn up at the port um, and the captain comes out and four of his sort of helpers, um, and we all get the bike loaded onto this little passenger ferry and they take me to the island. And obviously they don't really get foreign people on this island, let alone foreign vehicles. Um, and it was just the most amazing experience ever. Um, we had you know, this island is only sort of eight kilometers, I think, in diameter. Um, this, this is why Iran's incredible. So I get off the ferry, I head into this small inhabited town, and I just, I drove into the middle of town, pulled over um, just to have a drink. And I was, I was blocking someone's drive, so sort, of, sort, of, sort of their gates. And anyway, this guy turns up. He turns out, he opens up the gates and just, and beckons me in. And he, I was, it, the whole thing was so surreal. So his name was... Um, Mustafa, and he, he, he invites me in, um, and his wife, Sh Sharaf, is there, grinning, waving, they let me in, and then she comes and brings me a bowl of fruit, and then, then, then goes, do you want a shower? I'm thinking, I don't know who, who these people are, but I'm like, okay. So they take me to the shower, I have a shower, I then come out, and they've got this whole meal prepared for me. Bear in mind, I've literally only been there for probably less, like 10, 15 minutes, and they literally don't know who I am. They literally saw me on the street, pulled over, and welcome into their house. And they were the most incredible people ever. So I ended up staying with them for a few weeks on this island. And there's a little local shop for the locals to go to. Um, and it was just unbelievable. And there's the most amazing off-roading as well. So all around the island, there's this just so endless off-roading. It's, like it's like a biker's dream. Um, so if you've got a small bike um, and you head to the South Iran, definitely check it out. If you, you won't be able to put your bike on the ferry if you've got anything more than probably a 450 or so. But if you've got a CRF or something small, then it's... It's amazing. You'll have, you'll have the best time ever. So, yeah, eventually, I um, actually, and a friend of mine, a cyclist, um, who I, I'd actually met, this is, how, this is how you know I've been traveling so slowly, because a cyclist that I met in Turkey, I think four months before this, I then met him again in, uh, I then met him again in Georgia, in Tbilisi, <laughs> and, then, and then again in Azerbaijan. Um, 
I then he then messaged me saying, "Hey man, I'm in South Iran." <laughs> so we were we were pretty much traveling at the same sort of pace side by side for most of the past sort of four months <laughs> and I just I made it to the coast just a few um, like a week or so before he did and he missed me saying hey man where are you because he knew that I'd be close by because he knows how slow I go and I said hey man come to this island so Manu this French cyclist came to the island and we had a trip together around the island and it was just the most amazing experience ever um, and eventually um I thought, right, it's time to head off. Um, and also, I'd, I'd actually, at this point, I'd been also been able to, ex- I'd extended my visa um, for the second or third time um, for Iran, because I loved Iran so much, I didn't want to leave, so I kept extending my visa. And the people at the board, at the sort of customs office, um, police immigration centre, were so excited that I loved, they, they could see that I kept extending my visa. Um, and they were so excited that I kept wanting to extend it, because they could see from my passport, that they, they ended up doing it in like five minutes for me. It's supposed to take sort of, can take a week or so to extend the visa. They did it for me in like five, 10 minutes <laughs> and gave me a whole extra month. I was only supposed to have had an extra week and they were just, oh, the Iranians were so incredible. They really want to make sure that, you know, foreigners and tourists have a great time in their country. You know, they were just, they were so amazing. You know, you would not get that anywhere in the world. I mean, it's, Iran really is a special country. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And um, so it was really, really hard to leave the island actually. That was really difficult to, to, to leave. Um, but uh, eventually, eventually I did. Um, so Manu, he hit, we headed off to the island together. He then got put his, his bicycle on a ship and he headed to Dubai. And then he's flying to Thailand and then he's going to continue his trip from Thailand. Um, and because uh, it's quite difficult to get the Pakistan and the India visa on the road. But yeah, and then I, I sort of headed off. So I headed, sort of ended up heading north, sort of northeast. And to get from where I was to the border of Pakistan, I had to head through the Loot Desert. Now, if you Google the, I think, the hottest place on Earth, there's like, there's like seven places, and the Loot Desert is one of them. Um, I didn't know this. I think it was, was it my mum who told me or someone? Um, and so this place, I mean, it's... And I'd heard that, you know, that it was going to be hot, but it was, it was... I've never experienced anything like it. So I'm heading north, and while I'm, you know, heading up, my bike started spewing fuel, and I didn't realise. So I, I go to a fuel station... Um, they refill all my, my fuel tank, and literally it's just coming, going in and going straight out the other end. <laughs> so, and I didn't, I didn't realise until some local guy turns up and he goes, "Mate, your, your, your tank's leaking." Obviously, he didn't say it in a British accent like that. <laughs> he, um, he goes, "You know, you're leaking fuel." And I was like, "Oh no!" Um, and he said, "He said, don't worry, follow me." So I just follow this guy, um, and he takes me to his friend's house. And his friend's asleep. He wakes his friend up, and he goes, "Oh, you need to help this this guy out." So. He then calls his friends, all his friends turn up and they're all trying to help fix my bike. So we take the fuel tank apart. Um, now, this fuel tank I've got, it actually, the seal split in Albania about, oh, maybe, what's happening? What was that, nine, ten months ago, maybe? I've no idea. Maybe nine months ago or so. And it actually split in the mountains. When the fuel pump attaches to the, the actual tank itself, the little seal there, the rubber seal, that had split. Um, and I ended up sealing it with some silicon. Obviously, I know nothing about this stuff, as we've established. <laughs> so, but yes, anyway, the, in Albania, the, the seal broke, um, and so all the fuel, the fuel was pouring out, and I used some silicon that I had to reseal it, um, and that was that was awesome. Um, and it's actually lasted me basically since Albania. This the little botch job that I did has actually lasted quite well. And obviously, then it finally gave in in, in the crazy heat in Iran, and the, these guys managed to managed to, to fix it. Now to get the the bracket, which holds the fuel pump attached to the tank, to get it off, it, the, the screw is actually kind of, it seemed to have 
sort of welded itself to the, the tank, which is a plastic tank. And so the, guy, the guys who were these locals, they got a, um, an angle grinder and they're, ang- they're using it to get the bolt out of my fuel tank. It was a complete, <laughs> it was absolute mess. I'm literally there with my head in my hands, like just praying that they don't gash a hole in my fuel tank because I'm screwed. They, they, somehow they did it uh, and we managed to get the, it all sealed up again and all, all was good to go. Um, end up spending the night actually, well actually two nights with, the, with this family actually, the, the mechanics who helped me out and they were so friendly. Um, had quite a few nice parties with them. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it, was, it was Ramadan and it was just incredible. Anyway, so I then headed off and I think three days later, as I'm heading through the desert, the, something had, had gone wrong and the, it started, the fuel started leaking again. And so all the fuel in my tank pretty much drained out and I ended up being stranded in the loot desert um, with no fuel. And all, I'd used all my emergency fuel, hadn't found a fuel station for ages. The ones I had found had no fuel in them because there was a strike, some sort of fuel strike going on at the, at the time, which I didn't realise in Iran. Um, so there was a fuel shortage, um, or at least lots of the fuel stations were closed. So I couldn't find any fuel and I'd run out of fuel and I literally was stranded in this desert, trying to f- eventually waiting for a few hours until finally uh, a truck sort of turned up, um, and they were able to pick me up, take me to the sort of down the road where I don't know how far it was. There was one of those small little shacks where there's people. They have sort of fuel in barrels. It's not probably the cleanest fuel in the world, but anything would do. Um, and got some fuel, went back to the bike, and uh, and then was able to get head on my way. Um, so that was absolutely crazy, you know, <laughs> breaking, breaking down um, in, the, uh, in the middle of the desert. There's actually a video, I've actually just been finishing editing a video that will be going on my new YouTube channel soon, which you can actually see all this happening, uh, some of it anyway. And uh, this is quite, for me, it's very strange looking back at all the footage. It all seems very surreal. So anyway, I headed then towards the, the border to, to Pakistan. And while I was there... I pulled over on the side of the road in, I guess, called Mejava, I think the name is, um, in southeastern Iran, um, by the Pakistan border, and I suddenly see a bike go past that's not a local bike. And I did like a double take. And bear in mind, I've been on the road now for almost a year, and I've not seen a single foreign like biker, not a single adventure overland biker in almost a year. That's um, incredible. Which is, just, which, is, which is insane. We think there's loads of people doing these kind of trips. I can't believe I've not seen a single one. It's unbelievable. Um, I guess I've just chosen my seasons really wrong and got, gone through extreme winter and extreme summer, whereas most people use their, use their brains and decide to ride when it's, you know, <laughs> normal weather. <laughs> so anyway, and I, I see this biker and I sprint after this guy and I'm like waving, waving like mad. This guy probably thought, who is this nutter? And... It was Paolo, an Italian guy. I think he's 57 years old on his big BMW GS1200. Um, he'd left Italy, I think, like three weeks or so before. Um, he, so he'd managed to get from his hometown in Italy to the border to Pakistan in about three weeks. So what had taken me, yeah, almost a year. <laughs> he'd done it on three weeks on his GS. Um, but I mean, to be fair, he's got a comfortable seat so he can do those long, those, <laughs> those long miles. Um, and, you know, I was planning on going across the border the next day. He was going to wait for an Italian friend who was coming, Carlo, um, but this guy had some issues with his visa, so Paolo said, hey, do you mind if I join you across the border? And I said, of, of course, why not? So for me, it was really strange, because I'd never travelled with someone before, right? So I was all a bit, ooh, it was kind of exciting. And the next day, me and Paolo headed, you know, to the border. Um, now, it would have been simple, you know, we'd get on our bikes in the morning, and we just drive to the border, which was about 12, 12 kilometres away or so. But anyway, we wake up, and the place that we're staying... Um, they obviously have to register when foreigners stay. 
they'd registered that me and Paolo were staying at this place. And so when we, and they knew that we were leaving to go to Pakistan on the next day. So when we wake up in the morning, there's three or four trucks filled with armored soldiers who are there waiting to escort us to the border. And we're thinking, what the heck? We didn't ask for this. This is crazy. Um, and so this is the morning um, and we have to be escorted through through the town with this by this escort, basically, because they're so worried about foreigner safety in this part of the world, because it's you know right close to the Afghanistan border and, and whatnot. And then after like literally after like five minutes, we stop at the side of the road and we wait there for about 45 minutes while we wait for another escort to take over, to come. And then we go for another few kilometers, wait at the side of the road for another half an hour for the next escort to arrive. And it just went on and on like this. And we literally put me and we, made, we didn't even make it out of the town. And we'd been on the road for like three, four hours. Oh, it was just, it was just unbelievable. It was just the craziest thing ever. Um, and so, at one point, it was two hours we were stuck. When we finally left the, the, the town, we were stuck sort of on, this, on the freeway, or on this sort of command post. We were stuck there for a few hours. No one knew what was going on. No one would tell us what was happening. And the border closes, I think, at four, I think at three, four o'clock, right? And it's getting closer and closer to that time, even though we left in the morning. Um, and me and Paolo were saying, listen, we need to, you know, we need to get going. Oh, the border's going to close. And we'll have to come back and do it all again tomorrow. And they said, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. And they start getting their phones out and start playing music. And we're thinking, they're like, they're like, dance. And we're like, no, we don't want to dance. We want to get to the border. <laughs> and, and eventually, the escort turned up and we're calling people. Trying to, and we ended up, I think we ended up calling the tourist minister for the area. And he was calling, saying, oh, they shouldn't have to escort you for this part. This part's not dangerous. They only have to escort you for the Pakistan part or whatever. And, but they still wouldn't let us go. Um, and by the time we got to the border, the border was closed. So we had to spend the night at the border. Um, but the tourist, tourist minister for the area, he actually found us a place to stay. So he was awesome. Um, and then the next day, we get up early and we head to the border. Sure enough, we have to wait for more escorts. And it took us hours and hours to do like a few kilometers, um, which is it's kind of frustrating. But hang on, Ben, you mentioned that you're, you're talking to the tourism minister. How do you get a hold of these people when you're, I mean, you're on an escort here? How do you get their number? Oh, it's incredible. But the whole adventure sort of overland community always seemed to sh- share details. So somebody a few weeks before had given me the, the WhatsApp number of this guy. And they said, listen, when you cross the border from Iran to Pakistan, make sure you call this guy. He will help you out. So I had this number. Didn't have a clue who he was. Didn't realize that he was the tourism minister. Anyway, Paolo had also got a number as well. And he'd got the number of this, this the tourist minister, right? So he's saying, oh, we'll call this friend of ours, whatever. Turns out the, the number I had was actually the number that Paolo had as well. So we'd all been sort of this whole, it's been like a, like a WhatsApp group sort of thing that we'd all been sort of invited into um, for people who are in traveling this area. Uh, I'm still part of the group now. So if anyone message me if you want to be part of the group and need help crossing the border. Um, but it's amazing how all the overlanders look out for each other. And, and they're fine though. The, the tourism minister is fine with you messaging him for help. Oh, he, he, he encourages it. He's really active on this WhatsApp group. Um, yeah. You know, he's, he's re- and he wants to make sure that every tur- tourist who comes through has the best experience ever. Whether you're on a, a camper, a motorcycle, a motorbike, if you're a hitchhiker, you know, he will look after you and make sure you have a, a smooth experience. So he was really upset that me and Paolo, you know, had this bad experience with the escorts, you know, constantly being messed around. But at the same time, you know, you can't hold it against them because really they're just, they're just worried about your safety. They just want to make sure that you, you know, you have a good time in their area and nothing happens to you mm-hmm. because, you know, they're so, they're so paranoid. If one bad thing happens, you know, if one person gets kidnapped or there's a hit and run or something. So they're really, really paranoid about it. And I can see why. But at the same time, you know, when you're, when you're actually in the moment, you, you do get a little frustrated. But, you know, I mean, I've, I've, nothing really ever seems to phase you. I just, I just take it all with a pinch of salt and just accepted it. 
and yeah, so they, they, they finally we get to the border, um, and thanks to um, this, this guy, he it was a really smooth crossing, um, and you know it was very kind of emotional saying goodbye to to Iran, um, and it was actually quite funny. I don't I don't know if I mentioned this last time we spoke. Um, because I was actually in Iran at the time, so I'm not sure if I could publicly mention this. But loads of people have asked me how I've come into Iran as a British citizen. Because as a British, with a British uh, United Kingdom passport, you can't come into Iran without a guide. Um, I think it's, is it Americans, British and Australians maybe? I'm not sure, I can't go freely into Iran. They have to be escorted with a guide, which can be very, very expensive. Um, you know, I, I know someone who came for a four day tour um, on a motorcycle in Iran, and they spent over, almost four thousand pounds. What's that? Six thousand US dollars, which is insane. You know, it's a, it's a great money-making scheme, but it's. But I think it's because the British make it really hard for Iranians to get the visa for their country, so they retaliate by you know, which is you know, it's all politics really. Um, so many British people have to find other ways around Iran if they want to head east towards Asia. Um, whereas my mum, she was born in Northern Ireland. Now, Northern Ireland is is part of the United Kingdom, um, but Ever since this whole Brexit thing has happened um, in England, it came to light that if you have a, even if you have a Northern Irish uh, parent or relative um, uh, who has a Northern Irish passport, you can actually apply for a Southern Irish passport, which is the Republic of Ireland, which is not part of the United Kingdom. It's actually its own passport, which means if you have an Irish passport, you can travel to Iran without a guide. So you can save yourself 6,000 US dollars. <laughs> so that's exactly when it's hence. So thanks, thank, thanks to Brexit, I would never have known about it. I know that Brexit is you know, not the best thing, but for me, I think it's fantastic because it actually, without that, I would never have known that I could have applied for a second passport. <laughs> so you're traveling with the two passports now. So yeah. I was traveling with both passports, so I had to basically lie to everyone and, in Iran and say that I was Ben from Ireland. Um, and obviously, when I, so when I came to the, leave Iran and to Pakistan, I get to the border and they said, they gave them the Irish passport, which I've been traveling with for the past three months or so through Iran. And they said, we, they said, we can't let you leave. I said, why not? They said, you haven't got a, a Pakistan visa. I said, I do. And then I suddenly realized, I was like, oh no. Oh. For your other other uh... my Pakistan my Pakistan visas in my British passport, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, what do I do? Do I just give up and not go to Pakistan, or do I give them the passport and risk getting arrested? I mean, I didn't know what they were going to do to me because I'd literally lied to them for the past three months, and technically should have been had escorted. And I was shaking. I was thinking, what do I do? So I finally thought, right, this is risky. I took my passport, my Irish passport, out my my British passport out my pocket and said, here you go, my um, Pakistan visa's in here. The guy looked at it, took it, stamped it and gave it straight back to me. And that was it. And I was thinking, oh my word, that was so easy. I don't know why I was so worried. Like, it's crazy. All these misconceptions you have about a country, even though I traveled there for three months, you know, even then I was still kind of scared. But, you know, the, all this bureaucracy and stuff, it's really not as bad as I think the media and the TV makes it out to be. Um, you know, they were so relaxed about it. So <laughs> it saved me six grand, so I was happy. And I, they would finally cross the border. Um, and, and we enter into Pakistan. And when we get there, they said uh, you have to be escorted through Balochistan, which is kind of the province between the Iranian border and Lahore. Um, I think it's Punjab is the name of the province. Uh, right by the Indian border, there's a province called Balochistan. Um, and if you're heading through Balochistan, any foreigner has to be escorted the whole way. You're not allowed to be by yourself at all. So they, we crossed the border and it was really smooth crossing. And they said, we can't, uh, we have to stay by the border tonight because... The escorts will arrive tomorrow morning, nice and early, and then we'll head, you know, towards Quetta, this town in the desert. So 
I'm like, okay, so I follow this truck and he sort of guides us through. Obviously, before, well, before this, actually, we had to get, had to get my carnet stamped. Um, and it was sort of the most unofficial thing ever, really. I go into the room, I gave them the carnet. They wouldn't stamp the carnet until I took a selfie with all the officers. <laughs> <laughs> so once the selfie was done and once we made sure the photo was okay and that the lighting was perfect, <laughs> they said, right, okay, it's good. We stamped your carne. So then they stamped the carne, stamped our passports and let us into the country. I mean, they, they were so friendly and relaxed there. It was amazing. When, when you say us, you're talking about the Italian you're, you're traveling with at this point. He's riding the 1200. Yes, exactly. So it's me and, me, me and Paolo. Um, and yeah, they were fantastic. So we then head off through the gates and we sort of go through this sort of deserty town no idea where we're going, and then they lead us to these, these, sort of, these big gates, and they take us into this compound, and then they slide the door shut and put this big pole up against the door to make sure that no one can ram it down from the outside. And I'm thinking, what is going on? This is so strange. And we, they say, park there. Well, they don't say that. They just point, because they didn't speak in English, they point at this wall, and there's this big wall with all these railings, you know, this, which looks kind of like, looks kinda, looks kinda like a jail, like a jail cell, really. So we turn up, drop, park my bike right by this, what well, looks like a jail window, um, and then... The guys just, all the people just disappeared. So me and Paolo were just stood in this compound, like, what is going on? It's so strange. There's no one, there's not a single person in sight. There's no one around. It's just a weird, we're just sitting in this sort of, this compound. It's just very strange. And it's just, there's nothing going on. So me and Paolo just sort of walking around aimlessly, don't know what to do. And then a few hours goes by and some guy turns up um, with a tray with some food in it. And we, I'm sort of looking at this guy and he walks across the yard and he goes over to where our bikes are parked where this sort of jail cell window is, and he slides some food under the, the door. And we're like, what's going on? And then some, some men appear from inside and go to the railings and take their food. And it turns out we're actually in a prison. These were actual prisoners. They were in, the, they were in my bike was parked literally right by this jail cell. And it turns out there was, what, three or four cells along this wall full of prisoners. Um, and then Paolo had sort of, he sort of made me the spokesperson in all our interactions because he'd, whenever I hear, you know, when I go to a new country, I always try and listen to what the locals say and just say their words back to them and hope that I'm not saying anything offensive. So, <laughs> um, sometimes I just, I'll just keep saying it. There was one word, I forget what it was in Iran, I kept saying it, no clue what it meant. But whenever I said it, they grinned, so it was something good. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, I think there was one, it was, I think it was, when I was, when I was in Azerbaijan or Georgia, I kept, I, 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 I was there for over a month, I think, there, and I, hello, I'd been saying as goodbye the whole time that I was in the country, and not a single person had corrected me. So every time I'd say, you know, hello to someone, I'd literally go up, shake their hand and say goodbye every single time I went and spoke to them. But no one corrected me. Like, not a single person did. And it was only when I went to leave, I got to the border, that somebody mentioned it to me. They said, why, why are you saying that? And I said, well, I'm just saying hello. They said, no, that's goodbye. And I, and I Googled it. And sure enough, I've been saying it wrong the whole time. <laughs> so um, you think I would have learned my lesson, but no, I still say random stuff. No idea what I'm saying. So because of this ability you have to repeat things back, you get made the spokesperson <laughs> in the jail. <laughs> exactly. So I've been made the spokesperson. So I, say, I go and speak to the guy. I say, hey, man, what's going on? He spoke a tiny bit of English and said, no, no, today, no, no go. You know, tomorrow morning. You will go. I said, what? Bear in mind, it's like early morning at this point. We'd crossed the border really early in the morning. And this guy is saying that we've got to wait all day until in the next morning. You know, that's like 20, almost 24 hours away. You're spending the night in prison. We're spending the night in prison. And, it's, and I'm like, where do we sleep? So he takes me and the, turns out the, the, the officer man in charge of this jail prison, you know, 
he sleeps on the floor on the other side of the yard and next to him is a spare room and he said you sleep there i'm thinking okay sweet so we just there's, there's no there's no there's no duvet no you know no king size bed nothing nothing like that it's just a floor um which is totally fine i don't mind it um and so yeah just slept on this floor um i mean it smelled a little bit like piss in the room but you know what with a bit of after spraying a bit of aftershave you managed to get rid of the smell it was okay um and so <laughs> literally just spent the time in the cell and me and paolo cooked ourselves some dinner paolo being an italian you know i insisted that he cooked pasta uh, and sure enough, it was incredible pasta. We cooked it on his stove. Um, that was amazing. Um, and then, yes, I had some pasta that evening, shared it with the, some other prison guards turned up that night, and we shared our food with them, and they shared their food with us, and it was had a little sort of mini sort of party in, in the evening um, in this jail. It was very, very, all oh, very strange. We're going to take a short break to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you. Stick around, though, because when we come back, we get a lot more coming up with Ben. You're going to like this. Well, you know, when you're making changes to your bike, there's a few things that you can get away with, let's say, with lesser quality. I mean, if you buy, let's say, a set of inexpensive LED lights, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, they may fail completely. They may take in moisture. Maybe a few of the little LEDs will burn out, but none of that's a real problem, more of an inconvenience. But when it comes to foot pegs, you can't afford a failure. So you better buy quality. Now, IMS makes their foot pegs out of cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating, a homogenizing and annealing process, and they come with a lifetime warranty. And on top of that, they're built in the USA by a company that's been producing race quality parts since 1976. Now, it's not just the quality that um, IMS puts into the parts, not just the quality of the part itself, I should say. It's the R&D that goes into the design as well on top of that. You've got to have those two things together to really come out with a, an amazing product because you may have a real tough peg, but if it's not designed properly, then it's, it's not going to function. And there's a lot that goes into the design of a peg. Don't fool yourself. So just because you see a, a shiny foot peg somewhere doesn't mean that it's been torture tested by racers and ex-racers and, and been researched and planned long before it's been allowed to come to market. It could just be, you know, a knockoff or whatever. IMS has a complete line of foot pegs for us adventure riders. Actually, really for most riders, I think, from large platforms like the ADV1 and 2, right on down to the more race or trail-orientated rally and core pegs. So drop by their website and see why I'm riding on IMS Products foot pegs. The website is www.imsproducts.com. And of course, be sure anytime you're speaking with them, emailing them, whatever, make sure you throw in our name, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.imsproducts.com. Located in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia is a place where riders like to stop. It's on Highway 33 in southern British Columbia in a town called Beaverdale, and the place is called the Red Rock Garage. The Red Rock Garage is a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. They've got fuel, they've got clean washrooms, and they've got great coffee. And if you're going to stick around for a bit, they've got a, a B&B and a campground available as well. So the next time you're, you're looking for a destination, you're thinking, where should I ride to? Head to the Red Rock Garage in Beaverdale on Highway 33 in British Columbia. You can also check them out online. Their website is www.redrockgarage.ca. Of course, the .ca means it's Canadian because it's located in British Columbia. Highway 33 in Beaverdale. And make sure when you drop in, grab your fuel, grab a coffee, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. Make sure you let them know that. 
That's www.redrockgarage.ca. But but you're you're locked into the jail, but you're not actually with the prisoners. You're sort of you're you're locked in, but you're sort of where the guards are. Exactly. So we're kind of yeah. So we're in the we're the guard we're in the guards area. So we can go up we can go up to the jail cells. You know. Put our hands through if you wanted to, um, and we can hand them food and stuff when no one's looking. But yeah, we're not actually. Luckily, we're not actually with the prisoners. Although saying that, at one point, the prisoner, uh, one of the prisoners, was actually let out of a cell to start to start clearing up um, all the guards who'd had their dinner. They let the guy out of the cell to clear up their dinner, and I'm thinking this is crazy. This prisoner's being sort of loose, and he's just he's clearing up all the dinner. But I think. They're obviously not that harmful if they're allowed out, um, but the other guys, were, they weren't allowed out, but only one of the guys was. But yeah, and, he, and the guy, he, was, he came over, said hello, was actually really friendly, so I don't know what he'd done, but maybe he's, I don't know, who knows what he's done, but he was actually, he always seemed so lovely. Um, that's the funny thing about Iran um, yeah, and, and, and Pakistan, you know, even the, the people who are in prison are lovely, you know, that just shows how amazing the countries are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so we, um, the next morning, the, they sort of, we get woken up at four o'clock in the morning and there's, you know, three or four armoured trucks turn up with soldiers in and they say, right, let's go. And so we get on our bikes and head off. Um, as the sun's coming up, we sort of head down this road through the desert um, towards Quetta. And I think it's, you know, through this, the province that you've got to be escorted. I think it's, I don't know what it is exactly, maybe six to eight hundred kilometers or so you know it's quite a long way um and obviously i only ever do short journeys hence why it's taken me almost a year to get from london to pakistan um because i only do a few kilometers a day sometimes so this, is this day was going to be for you for me this is massive you know for paolo on his comfortable gs which is like a sofa it's fine for me on my <laughs> enduro crf250 with a rock hard seat you know even with my air cushion it's still you no know, not the most comfortable and obviously it's crazy heat as well i mean all my gear going through some of the hottest deserts ever. It was crazy. Um, so, which is why I think the, 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 the escort wanted to start early so that we could get, you know, get going before the crazy heat of the middle of the day. And sure enough, we get going. But we don't get, we don't, we're not on the road for long. And then within like 10 minutes or so, we get to a checkpoint. And they say, right, get off. We're like, okay, we get off the bikes. So we have to give our passports. We have to fill in the forms, give in our names. I have to give my father's name. I'm not quite sure why. And all, all my visa number, all this information you have to give in this little logbook. And then they say, right, wait here. And then you have to wait. And then they say the other escort's going to come. So the escort that picked us up, who drove a few kilometres with us, they weren't going to go with us the whole way, which I, thought, which I hoped would be the case. They, 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 each sort of truck or whatever is, is in charge of its each region. So they all just go back to the police station and that's where their base is. And we have to wait for a new truck to turn up. Or it could be an armoured truck, it could be a Hilux pickup truck it could be a motorcycle with some armed guys on it some commandos whatever you never know what's going to be um and yeah so we have to wait a few minutes there then some truck turns up and says right let's go so we go off we go another sort of 15 20 minutes maybe a few kilometers um and obviously you don't go fast you're going sort of 50 60 kilometers an hour you know because they don't want to go too quickly because you know they're really cautious um and yeah it's just the strangest thing ever then you go a little few minutes and then you've got to stop again get off the bike give your passport to the person in charge of the checkpoint um, and wait for your next escort to arrive and this just goes on for hours and hours and hours at one point actually we turned up um, at this place and so bear in mind Paolo's bike he's got a big GS 1200 with massive top box massive panniers and like three massive duffel bags and whereas I've only got 
a top box and two two small side box side panniers. He had about almost three times as the amount of luggage I did in terms of liters. The reason why I say that is we we turn up at this checkpoint and we're waiting for the escort and there's no one around. And then the guy goes, right, let's go. I'm thinking, where's the escort? And then the guy goes, no, I'm, I'm going on the back of your bike. I'm thinking, what? You're going on the back of my bike? So, <laughs> so the, the, the soldier then jumps on the back of my CRF 250. Bear in mind, I'm on a tiny little 250, which is not really designed for passengers. Yet there's a perfectly decent 1200 next to me, but the guy couldn't sit on it because it, because Paolo had so much luggage that there was no space <laughs> for the guy to sit. So he had to go on the small enduro bike instead. <laughs> and And... It was really, obviously, ever since my, I think we spoke last time about my accident, um, you know, in the car accident back in London, when I had some friends in my car, I then had a really bad accident in Colombia, and then again in Bolivia. Um, and, you know, the time in England, I had passengers in my car. The time in, in Colombia, I also had a, a girl on the back of my bike when I crashed and she got injured. And ever since then, that was four years ago, I have always said I would not take a single person on the back of my bike. I refuse to take any passengers on my bike just because I feel, you know, I can't be responsible for them. Um, I just feel so guilty if, if something would happen. So since then, it's been, what, four years? I've not given a single person lift on the back of my bike since then. Until, until this time, until, you know, until the guard says, right. Because I, I had no choice. Yeah, you don't have any choice. He literally just jumped on my bike. So I was, I was, I was shaking because I was there's, we're going through the desert. There's loads of crosswind. Um, I'd, I'd never experienced this kind of riding before. Well, well describe the riding and, and, the, and the temperature. So it's, yeah, it's around, it's between 40, 50 degrees. It's, I think it's, in the morning it was, yeah, sort of. Yeah, 40, 50 degrees, you're saying Celsius. That's like 104 Fahrenheit to 122 Fahrenheit, somewhere in there. We're really, really hot. It's, it's insanely hot. It wasn't that hot in the morning. It was probably around 38 degrees maybe in the morning, which is still hotter than we'd ever get in the summer back in, back in England. Um, and then, yeah, during the middle of the day, it was just insane. And so, you're, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing for miles. Just occasionally these little checkpoints. Um... And I can't believe these guys spend their whole lives, you know, in these checkpoints. You know, there's a little sort of, there's nothing for miles and there's little huts with a big barrier across the road. Um, and sometimes there'll be some solar panels out where they can, so they can have a bit of power. But often they just, you know, they've just, they're just sweating away. But they're obviously used to the heat, you know, they've, that's, it's their life. But it's absolutely crazy. So they, they're always quite excited to see a foreigner because they can, you know, talk for a few minutes. And they obviously, they're quite reluctant, obviously, to let you go with the next escort, they want you to stay longer so they can talk to you. But obviously all you want to do is get on the bike, right? Um, but they're always really, really super friendly and sometimes they want a photo as well and it's just really, really cool experience. But yeah, but riding with this guy on the back because he was a big, heavy guy and he's got, you know, he's got an AK-47 or whatever on his back as well, which adds even more weight and all his ammunition. So it's a lot of weight to add to the, my little CRF-250. Um, I don't think my suspension was designed to handle that. And obviously there's a crazy crosswind, so all the sand is coming across and obviously... When the when the tires hit the sand, you know I'm I'm such a bad rider that I can't I can't handle it, um, and I'm I'm shaking like mad. I'm just hoping that the next checkpoint will be soon so that you, you can get off. And this one went on for about 20, 30 kilometers or so, uh, and eventually we hit the next checkpoint. He hops off, shook my hand, and said, "Right, see you." And then luckily it was a truck. The next one, so this just went on and on all day, um, and. Everything was going fine, you know, the check, we, were get, we were getting really quick. I, I now know all my details of my passport off by heart, <laughs> um, <laughs> all my numbers and whatnot, because I've put them in so many times. Because every checkpoint you're having to pull everything out again, you name your father the whole bit every, every time. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, got, me and Paolo had a good system going where we literally, whoever, whoever got there first, we'd get off the bike and just literally we'd sign in. We end up 
writing both each other person's details down. So I knew pa- Paolo's details, he knew my details, and we just write each other's stuff down, get it quickly done, and get back on the bike, you know? Um, and, you know, we'd always search for shade any chance we could just to get cool. Um, and we were also in, you know, Paolo was in, a, was in a rush to get to this place called Quetta, um, which is the place we'd be staying. Because um, once you get to Quetta, you have to get this document signed, which is called an NOC document. Um, and it basically is like a, I'm not sure what it stands for, oh, non-objection certificate. And yeah, so you have to get this certificate signed, and it basically, I think, relieves the commando or the military that are called the levies um, of their responsibility to you. So I think it basically means that you can sort of be free and travel the rest of the way through Pakistan without being escorted. Um, but you can't leave Quetta until you've got this document signed um, uh, by the foreign ministry or something. Um, and it's closed on weekends. So if you arrive in Quetta, uh, you know, on a Friday night, you've got to wait until Saturday, uh, till Monday morning. So you're going to be stuck there for two, three days until, you know, until you can get this document signed and then get on your way. Um, and you can't really do much while you're waiting there. So, and obviously at this point, it was Thursday, I think it was. And so we were in a rush to get to Quetta so that Paolo could get this, his thing signed and get on his way because he had to push on to get to Myanmar because his, his tour was booked already and his flights to Australia or whatever was all booked already. So, you know, he really had to push on. So we were really trying to, you know, make up the miles. And I was really pushing my CRF you know, more than it's ever been pushed before, especially in this crazy heat. And eventually, it started cutting out. And the bike would cut out every sort of three seconds. The engine would stop, and then a few seconds later, it would come into life again. And then, you know, you'd go for a few seconds, and it would cut out. And it was just, I was pushing it and pushing it, and the, this, kept, this went on for about four hours. And it was absolute hell. I mean, I don't say that lightly. I mean, it was one of the toughest experiences of my whole trip. Because every time the engine cuts out, you get lurched forward. And it was just insane. And, and it was just so repetitive. And I was, I was trying to, I didn't want to stop and give in because I thought, no, I've got to push on. I don't want to you know, be late for Paolo. But it got to the point where if it, we ended up getting, finding this mountainous region, you know, over the desert. And the bike couldn't get up the hill. It just couldn't do it. It had no power left. And I, obviously I'm not a mechanic. I don't know anything about bikes. I had no idea what was going on. Paolo didn't know what was going on. The, the, the escort spoke in English. They thought I was running out of fuel. So every, every time the escort changed... The new escort would think that I had no fuel and would go to a fuel station and pull over. And I, well, not fuel, well, it's actually not a fuel station. It's just like a little shack on the side of the road with a few barrels of fuel. <laughs> and they use a sock as, as, a, as a filter to get rid of all the dirt. <laughs> um, and, and I kept saying, no, it's not, it's not the fuel, it's not fuel, it's the bike. And, they, and then they'd finally be like, okay, then the escort would change. We get a new escort. They would think the same thing. And this went on and on. And eventually, you know, the, these guys wanted to get to their families before late because it was Eid festival. It was the end of Ramadan at this point. And so it was maybe 80 kilometers or so from Quetta, the town we were going to be spending the night. And the, one of the guys or the truck was like, listen, this is your bike's literally about to break down. The bike was going like five kilometers an hour. It was, just, it was insane. And they said, listen, we, we need to get you to Quetta before dark. So you're going, to, you're going to have to put the bike on the truck. I was thinking, OK, fine, let's do this. But this, this first truck, it was a Hillux truck, so a pickup truck with a roof on the back. And we couldn't get the bike in. So we ended up, we, lit, we took all the panniers off, put them in the back. And we put the rear wheel of the bike on the truck and the front wheel is just dangling down on the ground. And they got some rope and sort of held, tied the, the handlebars of my bike to the roof. So it's kind of dangling up there. Um, and it was just crazy. There we are driving through the desert. I'm on the back of the truck um, with like three, four of the commandos who were armed to the teeth. And there's my bike just dangling off the back of this truck. And I can see Paolo just grinning from ear to ear um, <laughs> on, his, on his GS in the distance. And it was just crazy. And then, obviously, we only went a few 
minutes before we then had to take untie everything, take the rope off, take the bike off the back, and then put it onto the next truck. And it was just, it was insane. Eventually we found, we got one truck turned up, one of the escorts had no roof. So we were able to put the bike on the back. It was perfect, strapped it down. And then when we got to the next checkpoint, we had a really good system going where the next Helix truck would just reverse to our one and we just wheel the bike across. And we got this really good system going actually. Um, and uh, there was one point though where I'm on the back of this truck, right? And I forgot to put the bike into gear. Um, but it, which is fine, you know, because it's all tied on with the rope. But the rope came loose. So the rope's come loose. The bike is rolling off the back of this truck. The <laughs> flap is, is, is down. So there's nothing stopping the bike from flying away and going straight into Paolo's face. Um, and I'm literally grabbing onto this truck, to, 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 the, to the truck, with one arm on the bike, trying to hold on. Um, and I'm trying to also get attention of the driver in front, trying to bang on to get him to stop so he can, it was just, it was, it was crazy. And meanwhile, Paolo's still laughing at me on his bike. <laughs> and um, it was just crazy. Eventually, yeah, he, the guy got, could hear me shouting and pulled over me over to retire and whatever. But they, it was just a crazy experience. I mean, must've changed trucks yeah, over 20 times. Um, and eventually, finally, we um, made it to Quetta in the dark. Um, this is and, ago. How many, how many kilometers did you cover? Oh, this day was, ooh, what is it? Taftan? Is the place by the border where the prison was? Quetta is maybe it's six, seven hundred kilometers, I think, um, of riding that oh, day. So it's quite a distance. Oh, it's quite yes. Well, for, for my CRF, it's quite for Paolo. It was nothing really. That was pretty just an early, early morning ride for him. <laughs> for me on my CRF, it was yeah, that was massive. Um, so that was a really intense day, and it was a really long day as well. And we arrived pretty late, um, and we arrived into Quetta, and we ended up well, we ended up being waiting at the gates for about an hour because the final truck left us at the, sort of the, the entry to the city and we were stuck there for about an hour waiting, no idea what was going on. Um, we were told that the trucks, the next escort wouldn't arrive because the guys were praying. Uh, so we had to wait for them to finish praying before at the mosque and then they would come and take us. And so, yeah, we had no idea what was going on, but eventually they turned up, took us into the city and we must, through the city, we must have had another six or seven different escorts changed um, just to get to this place we would then be staying. And we get to this place, and it wasn't the it wasn't the nicest. I mean, I've I've stayed in some pretty bad places, so for me it wasn't a big deal. But for Paolo, he he, he likes to travel, you know, in a in a bit of, in a bit of comfort. Um, our style of traveling is very different, but we got on really really well actually, um, which is really cool. I love that how you know everyone's different, but every, when you when you're on the road, everyone just comes together, which I think is fantastic. But he likes a bit of comfort, so um, we obviously were staying in this place. I was I was having a shower actually, and. Um, I looked down at my feet, and because I could feel something on my feet, I looked down. I was like, "What is that?" I looked down, and there was two massive cockroaches just crawling around my feet. And then <laughs> I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And then seconds later, a rat comes running in and just sprints across the path through him as well. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the most ideal place. Um, you weren't the only one staying there, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was, you know, and I said, "Can I? I need to leave. Can I need to go and get um, my bike fixed? And also, can we get?" We also need to get the, the NOC documents signed the next day, which would be Friday. And they said, no, you can't go tomorrow because it's Eid festival, Eid holiday, which is the big kind of the equivalent of Christmas, I guess. For us, it's their big holiday. And um, I said, they said, no, the, the, the foreign ministry office is closed. It won't be open until Tuesday, which is like five or five days away. And Paolo was devastated because he was stuck in this place for five days. Um, and he's obviously wanted to get a move on. And so... 
after he, you know, it was not the best experience for him there. And so he managed to find this sort of four, five star hotel in Quetta, which is basically a hotel. It's like 200 euros a night, which is crazy expensive, especially for the, you know, the, the people in Quetta. Um, uh, and it's basically just for the, the United Nations, for the UN and the diplomats who come to Quetta. Um, they, they, they would stay there. Um, and for all the government officials. So tourists don't really stay there because it's not really a tourist, really a tourist place. Like, I think somebody told me, I think Quetta is, is it one of the most dangerous places in the world at the moment or, 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 in, this, or in this part of the world or something crazy, which is kind of scary. Yeah. So you don't get many tourists. Um, and so Paolo found this hotel and he said, listen, I'm going to go to this five-star hotel. The room's got two beds. So if you want to join me, then you know, you're more than welcome. And I was like, well, I'm not going to say no to that. So we left this um, place to go to this lovely five-star hotel resort which is like four kilometers away or so but we couldn't obviously my, we couldn't get my bike there and we actually ended up having to the, the i think six or seven motorcyclists uh, commando motorcyclists turned up um to escort me and paolo to this this lovely resort um and they, we ended up they ended up having i ended up being pushed through the streets of quetta they were literally these. I had literally one guy, one sort of bike on my left, one on my right, and and the soldiers on the back were pushing my panniers, pushing me through the streets to this hotel. It was so surreal, and through the streets as well. You know, bear in mind, I spent the past of two, three days locked up in this first place, um, not allowed to go anywhere, um, and you know, suddenly it was such a weird feeling being free again. You know, being in the street, and it was just full of armored trucks and soldiers and police everywhere. It was really strange. Anyway, we finally get to this resort and it's incredible. It was absolutely amazing. But, you know, we st I still wasn't allowed to leave. Um, I said, I need to take my bike to a mechanic shop to get it looked at, to get it fixed. They said, no, you're not, you're not allowed to leave. But I'm thinking, but I need to get it. How am I going to get my bike fixed? Um, and by this point, Paolo, he's able to, he's got the NOC document signed and he's basically headed off towards Lahore so he can get go straight across to India to keep on his carry on his journey and I'm still stuck in, in Quetta um, and I ended up calling a guy a biker because uh, all the whole the bike community in Pakistan is absolutely fantastic it's really amazing um, and as soon as I entered the country I got loads of messages from people saying hey welcome to Pakistan um, so I messaged this guy saying hey I'm, I'm stuck in Quetta you know I'm not allowed to go to a mechanic what do I do and he said don't worry leave it with me within a, like within like an hour he'd sent one of his friends who's a mechanic in Quetta to come to this hotel to, to look at the, my bike. And bear in mind, it's sort of, it's still Eid festival equivalent. Imagine leaving a family during Christmas holidays or during Christmas day. That just would not happen in, 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 in Europe or in the West, you know, people don't do that. And, they, and I, I literally felt so guilty. I said, no, I said, no, go back to your families. They said, no, they said, no, you are a guest here. We want to make sure that you're welcome. And they did, this guy did all he can. His name was Shamile, such an amazing guy. Um, and then he, we couldn't fix it. So he then called his friends and it was, yeah, over two weeks or so, I was there, stuck there. Uh, and I must have had a dozen, 15 or so mechanics and electricians who came to look at my bike and no one could fix it. Um, we had no idea what was going on. And eventually the chief of the commando unit, the police unit in Quetta, he actually came and met me and said, listen, you have to sell your motorbike. You cannot, there's no way out here. You have to sell your motorbike and just and leave the province. I said, no, firstly, I can't sell my bike because this bike is like a part of my trip, you know? This is my life. Um, it's like, the bike's called JJ. Um, and literally me and JJ have been together for every, through everything. I could never sell her. Um, also, this guy clearly didn't know anything about the Carne de Passage because the whole reason we have a Carne is so that you can't sell your bike in a foreign country. So the, the thing is Iran, Pakistan, India, Malaysia, 
Japan, you know, these, um, these require the carne for this reason. But this guy didn't seem to know. And I was explaining to him and he said, no, no, you've got to sell it. So I basically, I ended up saying, right, well, I've got to get the government involved. So I ended up having to get in touch with the British ambassador or the British ambassador's office um, and the British consulates in Islamabad um, to try and basically <laughs> get me out. I then booked a meeting with the, uh, the head of the foreign ministry, I think it is, or whatever, in Quetta. Um, and I met up with them and explained, I said, listen, if you don't let me leave, I'm, I'm, literally, I'm, I'm, I'm literally a prisoner here. I'm not allowed to leave this place. And obviously, by this point, I'm not, I'm not staying in the lovely hotel anymore because Paolo's left. So uh, I can't afford to stay in this place. <laughs> Um, so I'd, I'd had to move back to this other place. I also spent a few nights in the in the, sort of the police station barracks area as well. wasn't the best conditions. So I, I literally was a prisoner, and I was not allowed to go anywhere. And I so I, so I had, had a meeting with them. I said, "Listen, I'm literally a prisoner in Quetta. You're not, you're not letting me leave. You know, I, I'm going to have to get the British embassy to get me out unless we can, you know, find some sort of compromise." And as soon as I mentioned that, they were like all guns blazing. They were like, okay, right, we'll do some stuff. So they started rushing around, getting paperwork and whatever. And eventually they said, right, they got me, they got me permission, approval by the government <laughs> to allow me to go on a train and put my motorbike on a train to go from Quetta to Lahore. Now, foreigners aren't allowed to go on the train because it's too dangerous. And they said, they, they sat me down and they gave me like a briefing and said, right, we're going to put you on a train. We're going to give you a, your own personal commando. He's going to sit next to you the entire journey, which is 30 hours, and he says, you're not allowed to talk to anyone, avoid making eye contact with anyone, you can't accept food from anyone because they may try and target a foreigner and try and poison you. Oh, this security was insane. Um, and sure enough, we ended up taking my bike to this train station. Um, I ended up booking economy class, which has no air conditioning, no fan, literally just a metal sweat box surrounded by people. And um, even getting my train ticket was an adventure. You know, they took me, they didn't let me queue like everyone else. They took me into the back room, you know, with all my personal guards <laughs> to get my ticket. It was so funny. Wow. So th this has to get your nerves sort of too. I mean, they're telling you can't accept food because somebody might try and kill you. So you're probably standing there thinking that everyone around you is, is looking at you, figuring out how they can get at you. Exactly. I don't get scared easily, but I must admit I did. And my parents can vouch for this. I FaceTimed my parents the day before and just said, listen, I just wanted to say hello and just, you know, if something does happen, because I honestly was scared. I, I haven't, it was one of the first times I've been properly scared uh, on this trip. So I did FaceTime my family before I left, um, just, you know, just <laughs> saying my, my final goodbyes. I, would, I wouldn't have been scared. If they hadn't said all this stuff to me, I would have gone to the train because I'd had such a great experience in Pakistan. All the people were so lovely and friendly. I had, the, I had the best time there, so I wasn't scared at all. And then they start saying all these things to me, and I'm thinking, oh my word, no, I'm terrified. So... We, um, they, the, in the morning, the, the train leaves at 10 o'clock, they pick me up and I said that, you know, they needed to bring a big truck so we could put the bike in. They turn up in this small little truck and I, I thought, okay, it's fine, we, we, we'll make do, we could put the bike in the back. And they said, no, the bike won't fit. I said, no, listen, the bike will fit in the back of the truck, trust me, we've been through like 20 trucks through, <laughs> through the desert, like it will be fine. They said, no, no, it's, not, it's, too, it's too, too dangerous. I was like, what? They said, no, we'll get a tow rope instead. I'm thinking, what the heck? So... I meanwhile, I'm, so I'm packing my bike up and whatever, um, all my panniers. In the meantime, these commandos have made a makeshift rope out of my bungee straps. I've got a few like bungee straps on the back of my panniers just to strap stuff down. They're not the most strongest thing in the world, and they've made they've made a tow rope out of my bungee straps and then my rock straps, which are which I really love my rock straps actually. Um, and and literally they tied this um, 
made this tow rope and they tied it below my front fender to my front forks, which is the worst place to tie it. But I was in a rush because we were trying to get to the station before the train went. And it's tied to the back of this truck and we're going through the streets um, with this really dodgy <laughs> tow rope. So you're on the bike here just to get the scene. You're on the bike. They're towing you along with rope. You have no way of letting go of this rope. No, it's one of those. So the, as, obviously, as you know, when you're doing a tow, you, sp- you should be able to release it, you know, mm-hmm. in case something happens, right? It, it's, it's tied to the forks below the front fender. So it's literally touching the wheel. So it's the worst place ever. It's really low down. Bear in mind, they're also not going far, not going slow. They're going really quickly. Um, and obviously, also, because I, I thought we were going to put the bike on the back of the truck. So I, I packed everything away into my panniers. So I'm there just in this thin jacket and in my jeans. And I'm going through, you know, on my on my bike, and it was terrifying. It was so. And there, there's two commandos sat on the back of this truck, you know, who were just grinning at me the whole time. They thought the whole thing was hilarious while they while they're wielding their weapons, keep, they keep aiming their weapons at me. And I'm thinking, if you if, you, if your safety's not on and you fire, if you go over a bump and fire, then I'm dead. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they're aiming them at you. Not intentionally, but you know when they, they sit with with them, so they're sort of they're facing each other, and it's on their laps. Um, so it's basically facing backwards towards the road, towards exactly where I am. Right. Um, I'm just thinking, oh, it's like, obviously, the first thing when you have a gun is you never point it at someone, always point it at the floor. But uh, they obviously haven't been trained on that yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, uh, so it was hilarious. So we're going through the streets of Quetta to get to the railway station. And as we go around the roundabout, they took it too fast and, and my bike gets I literally get thrown down to the ground and I'm being, I'm being dragged along the floor while still holding onto my bike. I haven't got any gloves on. I haven't got any jacket on or any boots on. I'm literally just in my trainers, um, like just in my normal clothes. And it was, it, I'm literally being dragged along the floor. Well, meanwhile, the two commanders at the back are no longer smiling. They're literally banging on the window trying try to get the guy, the driver to stop. <laughs> and eventually we stop and, and all the cars behind in the main road just have to stop. And my rock straps, which I love, had stra- they'd snapped. The bungees had snapped. Everything had, it was just a complete mess. Um, and so we ended up having to push the bike the rest of the way. Um, luckily, thank God, I, you know, I wasn't too badly hurt because I had no, none of my gear on. Um, that was really lucky. So that was great. even just getting to the station was an adventure. So we, and by the time we walked to the station, the train had gone. So they said, right, the train's gone. You've got to come back tomorrow. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So they said, right, well, no, we can't be bothered to do this to transport the bike back. So we'll leave the bike at the station. Uh, and I had to spend another night there. Um, and then the next day, went back to the, the railway station. Luckily, my bike, well, oh, yeah, this is the thing, right? I get to the station the next day. My bike's not there. And they say, oh, no, the bike's already on the train. And I'm thinking, is it really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I, I said, I want to see the bike. I don't, I don't, you know, not, not that I don't believe you, but I don't believe you. <laughs> um, and I want to see the bike. And they said, they said, no, you can't see it. There's no time. They said, it's on the back, don't worry. And I'm thinking, well, I've got to take their word for it and hope that they've actually loaded the bike on. So I had obviously had my boxes with me, my panniers. And I said, I want to put them on the bike. They said, no, no, you've got to take them with you. So I had to carry my panniers onto the carriage. Bear in mind, I've got two rotate panniers with, you know, each end of the pannier has got a, bo- a big bottle of fuel. I've got about, what, eight litres of fuel or 10 litres of fuel total strapped to my panniers. So I'm carrying these panniers onto the train. Bear in mind, they stink of fuel. Um, and so I walk up the train and, and the carriage just stinks. And um, I put the panniers, um, put the panniers on the sort of, this sort of top bunk area. And the, and the fuel starts dripping, so I think, right, that's not going to work. So I put the, take the panniers off the top, um, where, the, where you're supposed to put your bags, put them on the floor. 
and I'm literally just crammed, surrounded by people. Then this commando turns up and says, hello, I will be with you for the whole way now. I am your guard. Um, and this guy, you know, just sits, sits next to me, you know, fully armed to the teeth. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. And then this family turns up who are super, super friendly. And they sit down, they start smiling, talking to me. And the commando's like, keeps looking at me like shaking his head. And it like, gives me stern looks because I keep smiling at them back, right? <laughs> and so I'm trying to, and I'm talking to these people and the commander's like, no, no, no. And then they get, they, get some, they, like, they get some snacks out and they start offering it to me and the commander's like, no. And so I literally was stuck in the corner by the window and this commando had like control of my life. And eventually the, the train leaves and we, you know, we get on our way. And it was, the whole thing was hilarious because I've got my panniers on the floor with all my fuel attached and all the people in the carriage start lighting up cigarettes. So I'm sat literally with my legs resting on the panniers, resting on these, you know, things of fuel, fuel cans, while everyone around me smoking cigarettes. And they're putting the cigarette butts out on the floor. And I'm thinking, oh my word, I literally was just waiting to explode. <laughs> and it was, it was just, it was crazy. Um, um, and I kept saying to them, I was like playing at the fuel, like, you know, trying to, and they, just, they, didn't, they didn't seem fast. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. but um, they were all, everyone was so friendly. And even the commando, once I got to know him, you know, once I broke down his hard rough exterior, he was actually a really he was actually a really friendly guy. Um, and every time he got to a station, he would have to get off and he would have to basically patrol the platform to make sure there was no nothing bad going on. And every time he got off, the family that I was with, who I'd met, who were in my little area, um, they would sneakily give me food um, when the commander was off the train. So they would feed him, and because you know, I've been told you know not to have food, but straight away, you know, after being on the road for quite a while now, I've I would say I'm hopefully a good judge of character. Um, when I first started travelling, I was horrendous. I was so naive and stupid. But now I'm hopefully less, <laughs> less so. So I could tell that these people were honest people and they weren't going to try and drug me or whatever. So I was accepting the food and it was... I have to admit, there was a bit in the back of my mind that was a bit nervous after all these stories I'd heard. But actually, it was all... You know, I think it was just... They were all, you know, trying to scare me, really. It's all scaremongering. And these people were so friendly. And so I ended up, you know, chilling with them for the whole journey. And I, I wasn't allowed off the train. So at one point, I did sneak off the train at Jakobabad, which is one of the hottest, next to Sibi, one of the hottest places on, in Asia. Um, and it was just so hot, I wasn't allowed to leave. And it was like a sweatbox. So I did actually leave the train at one point to try and get some water. And I was sneaking around the platform. And it was, there's, bear in mind, there's thousands of people in the middle of the night on this platform. We were stuck at the platform for four or five hours or so. And... Anyway, the, the chief of police saw me, right? Because I don't really blend in, because I you know, stand out. Because I, I was wearing, I was, I was like wearing my pyjamas at this point, uh, my pyjama trousers. <laughs> and I just stand out because I'm just, you know, the only white person. And, and he saw me and he grabs my arm and he's like, you, get on the train. And he starts shouting at me. And I'm like, oh no, please don't shout at me. And I said, I just want to get, I just want to get some water. And he said, no, I said, no, please, I'm thirsty. So he came with me to the little stool on the platform. I don't know if you've seen Slumdog Millionaire. Um, the film, but it's kind of like that. That's, you know, that's the, that was my image of what I had, and it, that's exactly what it was like. You know, these crazy, crazy platforms, if just all this madness going on, and it's such an amazing atmosphere. And there's all these little stalls and selling food and drinks, and the police officer takes me to the stall, and he parts the way. He makes everyone, you know, get out of his way, and he takes me to the front of the queue to get me some water, and everyone obeys him because he's the chief of police, right? Anyway, mm -hmm. then, this is, this is where it gets funny. The, the guy, I bought some water, and the guy gave me my change and the guy shortchanged me. He tried to sort of sneakily give me less than what I deserved. Bear in mind, the chief of police 
is right next to me, right? So he was really stupid. Anyway, the chief of police sees the counts the money and flips out at the at the cellar. Like, what are you doing? Why are you getting you like not giving the right money? And then this whole big kerfuffle happened on the platform, and he's shouting at the cellar. And um, and eventually we get back on the train. The train gets moving again. And yeah, the train was delayed. It was over. It was over thirty hours in the end before we finally, finally made it. <laughs> But yeah, we finally get to Lahore. Um, I get the bike. I'm exhausted. I get the bike off the, off the train, um, get to the front, and I had to basically within seconds. I was surrounded by locals who wanted to take selfies and just yeah, say hello. Um, and I was obviously I was exhausted. All I wanted to do was relax, and I was surrounded. Every time I tried to move, they would follow me. And so I thought, right, I'll ask one of them f- to use their WhatsApp. So I found their WhatsApp, and I was able to call uh, a biker in I think near to Karachi, um, and. And he called his friend, so called his, Iqbal Gangla, who's a really famous biker here in Pakistan. He helps loads of tourists out. Iqbal Gangla then called a friend in Lahore, who, was there, who then came in and met me. Um, and then so this guy, Moinji, turns up in a rickshaw. Um, and I'm thinking, how are we going to get my bike into a rickshaw? Does this guy know that my bike's broken down? And he goes, oh, don't worry, I'll push you. So he sat on his rickshaw, which is like, like a tuk-tuk, um, like you get in Southeast Asia. And he's got his leg stuck out the edge of this tuk-tuk. And he's just pushing me through the streets in his, you know, rush hour, early morning rush hour in Lahore, my first experience in this crazy city, and I'm being pushed through. And this guy was going so fast. Like, normally when you push someone, you go slow. This guy was not hanging about. He was rapid. So we were going quickly through the streets of Lahore. I'm absolutely terrified, but it was actually quite fun. Um, and he takes me to this hotel. Um, this, this guy who had called, he'd actually booked, he paid for me to stay in this hotel as well. Wow you know, to make sure that I was comfortable. I mean, it was the Pakistani people are so, um, it was just, just like the Iranians, they're so friendly and caring and they want to make sure you're okay. So it was just a really amazing experience. Um, and then the next morning I wake up after really nice, long, relaxing sleep uh, in comfort. Um, and my, I go downstairs and my bike's missing. My bike's not there. I'm thinking, oh my word, what's happened? I then, then like, I know like, I know 10, half an hour, minute, 30 minutes later, some guy turns up in this sort of Land Rover and he's in a like, all smartly dressed suit. He's like, get in. I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> I really should stop getting into the car with strangers. It's probably not the smartest thing. You know, when you're, when you're a kid and your parents say, don't, get, don't talk to strangers or get into the car with strangers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I get in the car, I go to the mechanic shop, this guy's mechanic shop, and a few hours later, some random man appears riding my motorcycle and he drives it straight into the workshop. And I flip out. I'm so excited because I've spent the past two two and a half or so weeks, almost three weeks maybe, literally stuck without, basically like a prisoner in Quetta, unable to go anywhere because my bike's broken. And finally it's working again within literally a few hours of being in Lahore. Turns out it was just a wiring issue the whole time. And not a single one of us could, even, I was even FaceTiming Honda back in England and no, none, none of us could figure it out, you know. Um, it was incredible. And then, so we went out, we went out that evening to celebrate, um, had a barbecue. And then six hours later, I was seriously ill and ended up having food poisoning for the next two and a half, three weeks. <laughs> so I literally was sped bound, really, really ill. Um, and it was just horrendous. It was awful. But, you know, it was, gave me time to reflect on all the craziness and I was able to, you know, get some writing done and get some videos made and whatnot. So it was, it was fun. But, and obviously I got to, got to stay with some amazing, amazing people here in the city. Um, and yeah, it was unbelievable. And then I finally got better and then went to look at the bike and realized that in all the craziness, the, the suspension of my bike has basically completely failed. The, the spring itself is, is still okay, but the actual, is it the pump? Is that the name? Inside the, the suspension? Yes, that's the one, the shock, yes. The shock is, is basically finished, um, as is the bearings for the steering column. 
So when, you, when you're going sort of 45 degrees, the, the bike, the steering will jam and you've basically got to bash it to get it. So if you want to go around a roundabout, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> um, so I was like, I need to get this fixed. So I couldn't find the parts. I tried for ages to find the parts here, couldn't find the parts here. Um, I then through the wonders of social media, I found this guy, Shahid Jami, who was in, he was in London for Wimbledon. He's, he's from Pakistan. He went to London for Wimbledon and he was flying back from London to Lahore. So I messaged him and said, hey, could you bring some parts back for me? Otherwise, it's, they're going to have to be shipped. And getting stuff into Pakistan, there's 100% import tax, apparently, and they can get stuck at customs for a few months if you're unlucky. And that's just crazy. So he said, yeah, of course. I'll help you out. I was like, amazing. I then got in touch with George Dennison from Honda Motor then in London and said, listen, this guy's leaving in two days. Can you get these parts? And he said, yes, of course. So he got these parts to me. He delivered them personally to Shahid's house in London. And then so Shahid arrived yesterday with these with my new bearings, which is amazing. So I'm going to get my suspension sorted out when I get to Thailand, because obviously the bike was built in Thailand, so hopefully they'll be able to get the parts easily there. Um, but it's, it's just been, I, it's been crazy. I mean, almost causing an international incident, you know, with getting, getting the British embassy and the <laughs> ambassador's office involved. Um, that, that's the last thing I ever thought would happen when I came into Pakistan. It's just been crazy, but it's been so much fun. It's been, I've loved every minute of it, and I've met the most amazing people. This has all been in four or five weeks, and you disappeared from social media. You've got a, a crowd of people that follow what you're doing and, and what your adventures are, but you just disappeared. And then, of course, people are starting to wonder. We even got emails here saying, hey, do you know what happened to Ben? And, of course, we didn't. Really? Yeah, and, and um, you're, you're saying at one point the government shut the internet down. When was that? Oh, my gosh, of course, Yes. Oh, I've missed out. Oh, gosh, I've missed out. But yes, of course. Right, so I come into... I finally get better, right? Off my food poisoning, you're trying to get the bike fixed. Then it's it's elections in Pakistan. Election day is coming up, right? And obviously, I don't want to get too much into the politics because I always try and stay out of politics. But from what I've heard, there's been a few bits of corruption going on over the past few years. Pakistan as a country has only been a country for the past 75 years, I think, since it got its independence from India. Um, and in that time, I think they've only had... I think three, is it three sort of proper elections um, in 75 years. Um, so this one was a really, really big deal. Um, I'm sorry to any Pakistanis if I've got that wrong. Um, but yeah, so this, this election was really, really big deal. I was a prisoner in Quetta for almost over two and a half weeks. Um, and I was getting really frustrated because I was wanting to leave. Anyway, now I fully understand why they, were, they kept me there. Because during the elections, the week before the elections, there was actually a, a suicide bomb attack in Quetta um, and, and lots of people were killed. Um, and then on the day of the election, there was another suicide bomb attack just outside Quetta as well. So now I fully understand why they say it's the most dangerous place you know, in this area and why they were so cautious about me being there. Um, because yeah, I, I, really, I, was really pretty, I was pretty lucky really that I was able to get out when I did. Um, so... <laughs> It all worked out well, but it obviously, yeah, it's really, it's been a crazy time with the elections here and everyone was really worried as well about what was going to happen. And so um, when they shut the internet down? And so basically, yeah, to make sure that there was no sort of, everyone sort of collaborating and to start a protest or whatever, they actually shut the internet down. So uh, there was no internet. It was really, really crazy. Um, and even when I was in, I, I couldn't post anything on social media as well before this when I was in Quetta as well, because there was basically just constant power cuts um, the power is quite a big issue here in Pakistan. They've got a massive shortage of power. Um, and up until, I think, 10 years ago, they actually used to have no power for, I think, 14 hours a day. They were powerless to try and cut back. 
only in the past 10 years they've managed to finally get a good power source going again. Um, so, I, yeah, I wasn't able to post or update anyone on my situation. Um, and then finally, when I, got, when I arrived in Lahore and I finally was free and had internet again, I was able to, you know, make a status saying that I was alive. And I sort of logged in and found all these emails and messages from people saying, are you alive? And I felt so guilty, you know, because obviously I was... People, people back home, you know, they got this, this conception of, um, of this part of the world, right? Um, and so that people, are, people are thinking the worst, thinking I'm dead. But being here, you know, it's really not as bad as... I mean, obviously, you know, there, there are still attacks. You know, there is, there is still danger about. But actually, it's a really, really fantastic country. And I would 100% recommend... I mean, I've, I've only barely scratched the surface of Pakistan. I'm, I'm still going to... I'm heading up to the Himalayas and the north soon. Um, but really, I'd recommend Pakistan 100% as a country to visit. Um, it really is beautiful. People are fantastic as well. The food... Be careful about what you eat, but um, the food really is good. Um, once you've gotten through the food poisoning stage, it's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. So I think lots of people were worried, but you know they didn't have to be because it really everything was everything was fine. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's certainly been an adventure. I'm never gonna ever forget it. <laughs> never. Well, Ben, we're we're so happy you're safe, and it, and it's great to hear your story. That is an interesting four or five weeks. I can't imagine what's coming up next for you. Oh, I am super, super excited. I think I've also just, um, my visa for Pakistan was about to expire. So I had to go to the, uh, the, the immigration center here in Lahore to get it extended. And I've heard that it can take up to two or three weeks to get it extended in Lahore or Islamabad. So I was really worried thinking, oh, no, what am I going to do? So I went to the place, um, explained, you know, that I'd, you know, how much I love Pakistan and showed them the photos of my trip so far. And the guy in the, in the office, the, the chief man of the passport, whatever place, he said, how long do you want? I said, well, I just need an extra few weeks, really, just so I can get my bike fixed and recover from my food poisoning and whatnot. And he said, he said, no, that's not enough time. You need six months. <laughs> I was like, OK, all right, sweet. <laughs> and he said, when do you, he, said, he said, when do you need it by? I said, well, whenever. You know, I'm not in a rush. He said, well, how was tomorrow at three o'clock? Bear in mind, this is like four o'clock in the afternoon. He said, he's literally saying, come back tomorrow afternoon. And I'm like, oh my word, that's amazing. So he did it for me one day. He did my thing. Um, and I, um, I, this, I also, I went to a hostel actually in Lahore and met a few other sort of travelers, backpackers. Um, and they would also try to do the same thing. They'd gone to extend their, their visa. And the guy, they'd been, they'd been charged, I think 200 euros or so to extend their visa for another month or two. Um, and they said it was real ball ache trying to get it done. But anyway, I, this guy I, who, who I was telling to in the office, I, was get, I got on really well with him. I did a little video as well, interviewing him. Anyway, when it came to collect my visa, which had six months on it, he refused to take any money from me. So he ended up giving me a six-month visa for free. So I've now got six months in Pakistan, which is incredible. Um, I can't believe it. So, yeah. So why is it do you think you get that sort of response from people? I, I don't know what it, I mean, I always, I always try and be friendly and respectful and smile. I mean, I've, I've met a few people who, you know, they, they I don't know, I don't, don't want to sound bad, but they, they, they try, they, they sort of expect things. They think, oh, they're, they're coming here, they've got money, they, they expect everything to, you know, go well for them. And they, they're kind of uh, maybe a little bit arrogant, I don't know if that's, uh, maybe that's a bit harsh, but, and so they, they, get, they don't get treated as well because then they, they're a bit bolshy maybe. They don't smile. They just they don't they don't try and learn the language, um, and so yeah. Whereas I've always you know, even when I was a kid and I went on holiday with my family, you know, going to France every single year, 
you know, always try and speak a bit of French, you know, you know, just try and just show them respect and show that you're trying and caring, you know, because you're in their country, you know, just be respectful. So I've always done that. And, you know, because obviously the same thing happened when I went to extend my Iran visa. You know, it's, it's just, I think if you smile and, you know, I really think a smile goes a long way. If you smile and just are just kind and just treat them with respect, then, you, you know, it goes a long way. Um, and I've, I've been so lucky. I've been so blessed that I've, you know, had the most amazing experiences and met the most amazing people um, on this trip so far. And I, I, I hope, hopefully it continues. <laughs> I've been speaking with Ben King when he's actually on the road. Ironically, that's the moniker he uses for his social media where you would probably like or enjoy following him. It is King on the Road at Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere that you'll find Ben. Um, And that link, of course, is in our show notes. But he's also started a new YouTube channel that's just come out just this week, I think. Um, It is King on the Road. We'll put a link in our show notes to that as well. You should definitely drop by and follow Ben and see what his life is like on the road. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Hey, if you like what we're doing here and you want to hear more, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We've got all of our episodes on there. You can download them, listen to them, and read the show notes absolutely free. We also have our other show, ARR Raw, which comes out once a month. You can drop by there. It's a separate show. You need to subscribe separately. It's all on the website. Again, www.adventureriderradio.com. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. I'm Steph Jevons from One Step Beyond, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!